I do want to caution listeners that and there's a very well-known, very strong correlation between eating ice cream and drowning deaths. <laughs> Coming to you in your speakers from Dubai to all around the globe. This is James Reynolds Traffic Jam Podcast. Five, four, three, two, one. Hey there, listener. Welcome back to Traffic Jam. This is episode number 34 of the podcast show that teaches you how to get more traffic and build a profitable audience online. I'm your host, James Reynolds. And really today, I just want to dive straight into the content because I'm very excited for today's guest and also for today's topic. We're joined today by Eric Enger, CEO of Stone Temple Consulting. And if you've listened to episode number 33 of Traffic Jam, you will be familiar with Stone Temple Consulting already because it's the same company that Mark Traphagen works for. Now, Eric Enger is doing some really great things in the area of inbound marketing and search and pioneering new ideas and a much needed change in approach to SEO. So I really am super stoked to have him on the show. Alongside Rand Fishkin, guest on episode number 22, he's right up there as a leader in the SEO industry. Now, he's a contributor all over the web in some very well-known places like Search Engine Land, Search Engine Watch, and Copy Blogger. And on today's episode, we will be talking about how he's developed and nurtured those relationships with other people's audiences. So the interview with Eric. Well, that's coming right up next, but don't go anywhere after that because, of course, we have got all of the regular segments of Traffic Jam, the ones that you're used to if you're a regular listener to the show, the one-minute traffic tip, this week's news in traffic, and then, of course, we end the show with a jam chosen by my guest today. That guest is, of course, Eric Enger, and let's hear from him right now. So what's up, listener? You're listening in to Traffic Jam episode number 34 and jamming with me today on the topic of SEO and inbound marketing is the 1984 world champion of foosball. Eric Enger, welcome to the call. Uh, well, thank you. And I'm sure that 1984 World Championship is relevant to the topic of content marketing and SEO. It's right on topic. It's right on topic. I couldn't move past the intro without getting that little factoid in. I think it's uh, very, very fun and interesting. So just before we get into the, the serious stuff, tell me about how you became world champion of foosball. But not only that, you're a national champion of a sport called Goalie Wars too. Is that right? Well, actually, Goalie War is the particular event in foosball that I was world champion in 84. Ah. And then I was national champion for that same event in 1985. So there's many different events. And that was the one that I was particularly good at. Um, and uh, and really how it happened is, uh, well, it, it kind of fit a funny role in my life. And the funny role is that it was like, uh, like many teenage boys, I wasn't particularly focused and <laughs> uh, and suddenly I, I just discovered foosball and started enjoying it and started competing. And I kind of got into this mode in working to accomplish something for myself. And it's really kind of a, a, a key point in, in teenage lives. That's a whole nother conversation. Yeah. Like talk about it at length. And, and when you find, find out, hey, I want to accomplish something and I'm going to focus on doing everything I need to do that. And, uh, you know, it's kind of what happened. I just got into it and started going to local tournaments all the time. And, Eventually started going on the, the world tour and was a ranked pro and, you know, all that kind of stuff. No, it's interesting stuff. And it is a whole topic of, of conversation entirely different to what we'll be discussing today. But there certainly is... Um, a lot of commonality to the guests that I have on the show, the people that I surround myself with. So many of them have been at 
active sports people or athletes or had some form of competitive um you know com- competitive competition that's not really a great way of describing it but they've had they've been involved in some form of sort of sporting activity or, or competition as they were younger and it certainly builds up certain traits that are you know uh, helpful and effective in business i think later in life i, I agree now let's get to the serious introduction i i guess now you're the uh, you're the co-author of the art of seo along with former traffic jam guest rand fishkin uh, you're the ceo of stone temple consulting which is an seo and digital marketing agency based out of boston in the usa and you're a content contributor to many websites I think our listeners would be familiar with, such as Search Engine Watch and Search Engine Land, amongst others. You're certainly a well-known authority, Eric, in the topic of SEO and inbound marketing. But do you practice what you preach? Are you, uh, are you doing all this stuff with Stone Temple Consulting itself? Oh, absolutely. In fact, uh, uh, we're a company that has no sales force. We make no phone calls we, uh, to, to get uh, new customers. We don't reach out to people and pitch our services. Um, the only way to uh, become a client is to reach out to us uh, you know, through the phone number listed on the site or the email address listed on the site or come and, and find me at a conference. Um, and it's not actually something that we're planning to change. In fact, we're... We, we've doubled down on it uh, recently. I think you said this was episode 34. Episode 33 guest Mark Traphagen uh, is, uh, works with us, and he joined us as of January 2nd. Uh, so we're actually increasing our content marketing efforts as, as a way of, of trying to build the business. Um, and, and it's fun, and it's exciting, to be honest with you. Uh, uh, I, I know I get energized by it because, you always have your creative juices going and you're trying to figure out to, what's the new strategy that we can we can do and what's this great new piece of content we can come up with. And, you know, it, it's, a, it's a great way to go about uh, doing things. Yeah, I think it, perhaps though still a scary concept to many businesses. I mean, going without a sales force might seem to them like they're doing away with some form of regular flow of leads or or, or putting themselves in a scenario where a flow of leads might be unpredictable because they're not reaching out. Do you think that would be the, the case? I, I agree that it, it's scary for people to do. And, uh, you know, in our case, we did have uh, uh, the luxury of, uh, you know, I had a pretty good solo person consulting business when I first brought someone on to, to help me build and grow the company. Um, and a, a guy called John Biondo, who's an awesome uh, SEO and content marketer in his own right. Um, but um, we uh, we were able to sit there and you know patiently build the uh, build the business. Um, so we had some financial freedom, basically working on our side. Um, so it's not necessarily easy for everyone to embrace it exactly the way we did it, but. If you have a business which has a strong component of outbound sales to, to, to bring leads in, that's great. I'm not proposing that you, uh, you know, lay those people off or stop doing that, but you can actually supplement your sales through this inbound approach uh, and use that sales channel, that outbound sales channel to allow you to be patient like we could be with Stone Temple. And by the way, as you do more and more of that uh, content marketing to drive inbound leads, you're also building the authority online, which makes those outbound sales efforts more effective because that salesperson can say, oh, and so-and-so from our company recently published an article on exactly the topic you're asking about, Mr. Potential Customer. Um, let me send you the link over that and see what they wrote in such and such authoritative journal. It's a very powerful tactic, even if you do have an outbound sales component. Yeah. Well, it's certainly something that 
um, I would testify to in my own business. I mean, the amount of content that we use in other areas of the business is is huge. I mean, we're, you know, forever pointing people off to articles and posts that we've written. If we get even a question from a current customer on the help desk about, you know, what processes we're undertaking and why are we doing them? I mean, you know, it, it has... You know, other effects other than actually drawing people in, right? I mean, this um, it really does sort of transcend through the whole business. It, it, it really does. And, and there's a little bit of a cultural aspect, too. And, and kind of a key point that I want to get to is that you can't publish what I call blather, right? That's a technical term for you. <laughs> uh, and and uh, I'll highlight it this way, right? Um, if you actually do a, a fairly complex search query using the in-title operator, which basically requires the text string that you specify with it to be in its exact form in the title tag of, of web pages. So let's take a query, in-title colon, and then in quotes, how to make French toast, right? Um, you'll get thousands of pages, right? And I can tell you that I haven't had French toast for 25 years because it just doesn't fit what I do with my diet these days. I can still tell you how to make it. You do not. And you get thousands of articles in response to the query I just suggested. And, and you don't need thousands of answers for this. Mm. From Google's perspective, they need a few, right? Maybe four or something. And Google's happy because now they have the definitive works of all the ways to make French toast covered in four web pages. And all these other people are kind of wasting their time. And I've now shared this kind of like it's Google's perspective. But now think about it from a prospect perspective, somebody who's out looking for different articles. If you write blather like articles, like a how to make French toast article, they're never going to find you. And if they do, they're not going to think that you've done anything of particular interest. So the big key now is what's your strategy uh, for coming up with content? which is going to attract people's attention. How is it helping them solve a problem? How is it advancing the craft, whatever you know, area you're in? What, what, what is it that makes it unique? Or what is it that triggers an emotional reaction so that they're, uh, you know, they're laughing or, or crying or, or connecting with you? you know, these are the kinds of problems you need to solve if you're going to make a content marketing campaign effective. So how do you identify what those topics might be? Let's get down to the, the kind of nitty gritty of it. How do you determine that strategy and what type of content is going to be the right fit for your target market? So there's a couple of ways to go about it. I think they're both important. Um, so the, the first is um, really spend some time thinking about what makes your business unique and different and your expertise unique and different, right? Because um, it, it really needs to come from, in my opinion, from your own passion and what makes you special. Because whatever business you're in, hopefully there is something that makes you special because otherwise you're, you know, have a very tough business life in general, right? It's all about hustling if you don't have anything special. And that's a hard way to to live, in my opinion. So it's got to kind of, um, you know how they say charity kind of starts at home? Well, in this case, content marketing strategies start at home, right? You have to like think about what it is that you can really put out there that that might have some aspect of uniqueness, perhaps just coming from your passion and your perspective of how you think about things. Um, and then, of course, you can supplement that with research into what competitors are doing and and what other stuff is being written out there. Um, and that's really important to do, too. But I really want to urge people to really start internally and think about, you know, what makes it special? What are you expert at? So that uh, when you, you when you put something out there and somebody, you know, makes some comments or they want to debate stuff with you, uh, you know, your passion is going to come right forward. It's going to be, okay, wait, no, wait a minute. I, but let's, let's go at it. I, I disagree with you. Here's how I think about it. I'm not talking about starting fights here per se, but, you know, engaging and really getting in real conversations that become really easy for you because it starts from from, you know, what you know and what you're passionate about. Now, we're talking really about this concept of of content marketing with the emphasis, I think, at least here on the the point of marketing. Now, 
you're in your case, you're not just publishing content to your own site. You are doing that, of course, but you're also leveraging perhaps other relationships, other websites that you're a contributor to. Tell us about how that process has worked out for you. Yeah, I, I'm, it, it, first of all, it's worked out great. Uh, uh, the sites that I write on most often, you mentioned two of them, Search Engine Land and Search Engine Watch. Those are great sites. I, I also uh, write on Forbes. Uh, I write on uh, Copy Blogger. Uh, and sometimes I'll show up in other sites like social media today or marketing land and things like that. But um, I'm a big fan of what I call OPA or other people's audiences. Yeah. Right. Um, I can tell you when we first launched the stone temple consulting blog, which now has a pretty good readership, but when we first launched it during the first two years, the best six articles I ever wrote were the first six I put on the site yeah. and no one ever read them. <laughs> oh my gosh i've heard many people many people say that you put all the effort in up front right and then no one comes by to to read it it's uh it's self you know it's self-destroying isn't it i think <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you know it, it's uh, it can be very frustrating and very scary and this this is a stage where a lot of people drop out right but i you really want to understand how to get access to other people's audiences and there's there's two ways, the two major ways to do it. One category is engaging in social media because there's, there's communities and groups and uh, you know, people who are influential there and you can start engaging on social media. And, and that's very much a part of your content marketing strategy, by the way, mm. not just publishing articles. It's publishing you know, posts on social media sites, be it Facebook or Twitter or Google Plus or what have you. Um, and you can actually start by getting on these platforms, getting exposure to new audiences and building relationships, which can lead to people coming to your site. So, so that's, that's one big part of what you need to do. The other big part of what you need to do is you need to think about, okay, well, let's say I want to write for Forbes, right? And I haven't been writing uh, and I, you know, I don't have a lot of industry reputation. That might be a very tough and daunting target to think about coming out of the gate, right? So, um, so you don't, you know, start by emailing them because they don't, you know, have any proof as to who you are. I mean, they're going to look for their own social proof that what you write is good stuff and that, you know, you have something special to add. So you don't necessarily have to start with the top tier, but no matter what you're doing in the long term, in my opinion, your objective needs to be the top tier. But you don't get to be there on day one. So maybe you start two tiers down with some really high quality sites, but they're not as well known and not as established. Build a relationship with those people through social media. Get to the point where they're willing to take content from you. Get yourself established. Spend a number of months doing that. And then once you have that track record, and you can show the great stuff you've been writing for, you know, this site and what I'm calling tier three right now. Start contacting tier two sites and say, hey, be interested in writing for you. Here's the great content I, I, I wrote over on this other site. Uh, and oh, by the way, you can see the social response I'm getting to my articles over here is, is strong. Uh, and, I'm, you know, I'd love to be able to you know, contribute great content to your audience. Um, and now you've taken a step up the ladder, right? Now you're in tier two and you, and then you live in tier two for a while, establish your reputation there. And you finally get yourself to the point where you're ready to go to tier one, right? Um, now for me, a tier one site would be a Forbes. And I, I, I worked that process to, to get there quite carefully. Um, and, and that's great. For a local business, it might be the local newspaper. If you're in the Baltimore area, it might be the Baltimore Sun, right? Uh, you're not looking for the New York Times. It's not applicable to you, right? But um, how you define what tier one is for you depends on the specifics of your business and your market. But that's the general way I think about it. Good. Well, I'm glad you answered that question in the way that you did, because I think there would be listeners out there going, well, OK, it's fine for Eric Enger. He's Eric Enger, he's got a book, he's written for these people, you know, he's clearly going to be able to reach out and, and um, you know, reach into these new audiences. But what about for me, I've got a small little local business. But the point is that 
there will be people out there looking for great contributions in your market. I mean, newspapers, offline press, um, blog owners, they all want content. And if you can fill a void that they haven't got filled already, they'll be very welcoming that you've approached them if you've got some, you know, some level of understanding of your own subject matter, right? Absolutely. And, you know, it's really important, this concept, uh, and this is the reason why I wanted to do it, is if you in that local market, right, um, don't go like writing articles if you're in Baltimore, to use my example, uh, you know, for uh, companion businesses in California where um, nobody's ever going to like see that content that could potentially be a customer. Learn how to filter what you're doing based on places where you might actually get clicks to your site that could become a customer. Um, And um, those are the places that are going to build your visibility and reputation in whatever your market is. And if you do this really well, now you're putting together the kind of campaign that creates the type of signals that Google and Bing want to see from you anyway. You know, that Baltimore business, they don't want to see you flinging stuff all over the place in California and, and uh, you know, London and Sydney and, and uh, you know, Poland, you know, and, uh, you know, <laughs> you should be creating content that works for you, even if the search engines aren't around in getting visibility for your business. And yeah. that's the SEO. Yeah, I mean, that's it, right? It's knowing who your customer is and knowing where their watering hole is and then just go into that watering hole with your content. I mean, it's uh, it's not rocket science. Now, anyway, I think that's a nice segue to some topical conversation around search. Um, it, of course, has been a pretty big past 12 months in search, as um, most 12 months tend to be in the space of SEO, but this time primarily due to the biggest algorithmic update since the original Google search algorithm was created. I'm, of course, talking about Hummingbird. How's Hummingbird different to its predecessors, Eric? Yeah, it's a great question because there's a lot of misunderstanding about this. So first one I want to do is uh, try to create a visualization for people listening Uh, Imagine that uh, Google search has three major components, right? Uh, The first is the crawler that runs around the web and and brings in all the raw data. Um, The second is a thing called the index, which is where all that data is stored after a certain amount of processing. And then the third thing from a technical perspective is what we really should refer to as the search engine. And that's the hunk of code where all the algorithms like Panda and Penguin and link algorithms and stuff like that reside that knows how to pull data out of the index in response to a query. So it's really important to keep those three pieces in your mind. One, crawler, two, index, three, search engine. Mm. Part three, the search engine, is the piece for which Hummingbird was a complete rewrite. Now, uh, that might make you think, well, rankings probably changed for everything dramatically at the time. But they really didn't because there are certain modules in Google search that they didn't change at the same time. So the Panda algorithm didn't change. The Penguin algorithm changed, didn't change. The algorithm for processing uh, links uh, didn't change. But it was a platform change to make that search engine part of their service more nimble so they can make changes more quickly going forward in the future. And what this led to is at the time that Hummingbird was released, it was actually evidently out on the market for something like 30 days. Yeah. Uh, and nobody knew. Uh, <laughs> or very few people noticed substantial changes. Um, and, and it was because of what I described. They, they they replatformed it, but they didn't change the basic algorithms that drive the, the, the rankings. Um, and the, what people did notice is there were some changes related to natural language search. And this is why people get confused and they think Hummingbird was all just about natural language search being brought into, uh, in, you know, into Google in a bigger way. Um, the truth of the matter is we had natural language search back from May of 2013 but it was only tied to Google's knowledge graph, uh, which is basically structured databases where they're able to 
answer questions like, how do you compare apples and oranges, um, uh, you know, and the like. Um, uh, but what they did include with Hummingbird is a way for natural language searches to begin to operate on regular web results rather than just pulling that data from uh, the Knowledge Graph database. So is there any change in strategy as far as a business is concerned if they're, of course, wanting to acquire rankings within search? Anything we need to do different? Well, um, you know, it's subtle, right, because it doesn't feel like a lot changed. But um, I think the real import of this, it really breaks into probably two major categories. Uh, first of all, the natural language search thing is actually important um, because people are going to be no, doing more, uh, you know, verbal typing uh, queries, right? And, and it's going to be driven a lot, I think, by mobile devices. So people will be doing searches on their smartphone and as they get increasingly comfortable with, that their vocal commands are being recognized, they'll just, you know, use it like a Star Trek communicator and they'll, they'll, they'll make their... Uh, uh, query that way, and, and that that's a um, that's going to have some impact, um, um, and and so that well, let me cover the second part too, and then I'll talk about how it impacts people. Um, the the second part is you can expect these uh, new algorithm updates and new ways of of improving Google search results to accelerate. The whole purpose of this platform change was to allow them to do more and to move more quickly and be more nimble at Google. That was really the core purpose. What both of these things add up to, the platform change and the, the natural language integration, is it's going to force you more into a holistic way of thinking uh, because their ability to attack uh, the kinds of behaviors they don't like and just simply rank things in their opinion better mm. um, is is increased. So we know what they really want. They really want to have the best possible uh, results in the first few organic search positions, uh, and um, and their ability to deal with the the not so good results and, and refine and improve those things um, has increased dramatically as a result of Hummingbird. So let me sort of translate that into just a couple of quick tips. Um, you have to do some real old-fashioned marketing things. You have to understand the persona of your, your potential customers. You have to make sure not only your content marketing strategy, if you're doing that, addresses that persona, but the content and structure of your website has to address those personas. Um, and, and so that's a different kind of thought process for a lot of businesses who might have been SEO centric, mm. and they now need to unravel that and say, "Okay, I got to get customer centric here because that's going to be my best SEO." Well, this is nice. This ties in uh, right right in with what David Amlin talked about on uh, episode thirty. So I'm going to include that in the show notes so people can go off and find that episode as well. But I guess really what we're talking about here also is this kind of change in approach to things like. Keywords. Google are now encouraging this kind of common language, natural language search. Also, our technology is also encouraging the use of more natural language search, be it on mobile or, or whatever else. Are keywords and, and keyword research on their way out as far as SEO is concerned, Eric? I don't think so, uh, because um, if you go back, imagine we go back 20 years in time and you're a traditional marketer, right? And you don't have search as an option those traditional marketers would have died for keyword data because keyword data tells them the language that their prospective customers use, right? Now you can tailor your advertising and your messaging to, to be in a common language, your potential customer. That's powerful stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and it feeds very well into uh, semantic search. Since you mentioned David Amerlin with, with uh, get that term into the conversation. Um, it, it fits very well in the semantic search because Google still needs to know what your web pages are about. Um, it's still, you know, problematic for them to, you know, read images and videos uh, and, you know, that kind of content. So they need, do need text on the page to help them get the context of what you are relevant to. 
And if you're using a common language as your uh, prospective customer, that's a stronger match, yeah. right? So, I mean, the, the prospective customer might say, hey, I want to find the closest place to get a custom uh, T-shirt made and, and, and get delivery tomorrow. That might be their long sentence, right? And, you know, if you have uh, a page on your site, uh, custom T-shirts delivery tomorrow, and you happen to be in a local area, bang. <laughs> well, that's it, right? It, it goes well beyond search rankings itself, and it really goes right through to conversions. If you can match those language patterns that your prospects are using in search, both in the search results and then on the page of your website, you know, there's far more chances that that prospect is going to convert into a customer because they find what they're looking for. I mean, that's really it, right? Yeah, Absolutely. <laughs> How about the approach to link building? I mean, I've, I've, I think I've actually quoted your interview with Matt Cutts where, where he said link building is not bad and it's still the best indicator Google has of a website's authority. Now, it seems clear that links are still very important, but what's the approach to getting your content linked to? Yeah, um, so to me, uh, you know, content marketing is the approach that we use, as we've talked about at the beginning, but just to, you know, how do you get your content linked to? Um, there, there's a, uh, a potentially complex set of things that you can do, but the first thing to do is to get out there and get known, right? Do you have an opportunity to pitch and speak at a conference in your industry? Do you, uh, uh, or if you're a local business, do you have a, a, an opportunity to go to a uh, you know, a local meeting of some sort of, you know, people in your community and, you know, sponsor it and get a chance to present, uh, uh, you know, a couple of minutes, just talk about what you do and get known. Um, is there an opportunity to jump on social media uh, and and really focus on adding value for people on social media and get known as someone that solves problems for other people? These kinds of reputation building activities all feed the potential for you to get links to your content. Um, uh, and, and it's a very powerful way to do it. And the way I'm describing it, I'll give you an analogy. It's just sort of a way to frame this. Um, traditionally, people have viewed link building like hunters. And by the way, I'm not being critical of hunters here, but it's been a uh, see target, point at target, shoot target, kill target, uh, and and, you know, every single link they got was of some direct activity on their part. Mm -hmm. Whereas the philosophy for link building today needs to be more like a farmer philosophy, right? You have to do some planning. You have to set some things in motion, uh, which will bring you a great yield. Uh, um, and, you know, at, at the end of the season, right? Um, and this notion is how do you go out and build your brand and reputation while publishing great content, while getting exposure to other people's audiences, uh, and then getting good content on your site as well, uh, all working together so that people are going to keep wanting to find your stuff and, mm. uh, and, and come after you and, you know, and ask you to do interviews and uh, podcasts and, and you know, HOA events and speak at conferences or, or whatever the cases may be. Um, you, you know, you kind of have to, Go through a process of creating demand for yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this interview itself would be a case in point, right, Eric? I mean, I've reached out to you because I feel you've got something that's of value to offer my audience. And of course, when we do feature you on the uh, on the website, we're going to link back to you and reference all of those places that you've talked about, thus further building your authority and potential ranking in the search results. I mean, that that's it. I mean, <laughs> it really yeah. is a, a classic case study here in play. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, what will happen is because uh, you've been kind enough to have me on the show, uh, I'll promptly turn around and promote it in my social media feeds. Uh, and uh, you know, Mark Traphagen will probably do the same since he works for us. And uh, this will generate exposure back for you. Uh, and so you know, we're effectively working together to help your audience, right? And that's building both of our uh, reputations and visibility in the process. And uh, it's a great way to do things.
Yeah, exactly. Well, I'm glad we touched very briefly there also on social media because, again, we've had this kind of line of conversation running through the the undertones of uh, this interview about this kind of people-driven, social-driven web. What's your take on social signals and their contribution towards an impact on search results? So we've done many studies on this. And your listeners are probably very familiar with the correlation studies published by Moz and by search metrics, which show a very strong correlation between um, uh, social signals and ranking in the search results. But I, I do want to caution listeners uh, that uh, it, that's a correlation. And there's also a very well-known, very strong correlation between eating ice cream and drowning deaths. <laughs> uh, and um, the the reality is both of those things happen because it's hot outside and and think it through right well if i produce a great piece of content that people might link to which would nobody would argue would drive search rankings well people might actually share that and plus one that and like that and tweet that and um, those kinds of signals are probably going to happen also for that content because it's great content. Yeah. Right. So just to tell you what we've done, we've done actually three studies, which were very extensive, where instead of measuring correlation, we went out to try and measure causation of whether or not Google+, Plus, Facebook, and Twitter drove search rankings. And we did some very extensive studies to actually take some content and do a, a large number of, of social events for those. Um, and see if rankings moved in any material way. And in parallel, we would have some baseline pages, which we weren't doing these social events. So, you know, if there was movement on the test pages and the baseline pages had kind of similar movement, then we'd know that it wasn't, you know, really social as a ranking signal. Um, bottom line, no real evidence of social signals directly driving SEO. But but I don't want to leave it there because there's a huge reason and there's actually huge SEO reasons to do social media. And that's because you create this wonderful synergy when you have a strong social media presence where the content on your social media is similar to what you're publishing on your site or your third party articles. Um, that when you publish that content, you share it in social media and hopefully that content is so good that it helps your social media grow. And in turn, your social media will send traffic, you know, readers and links back to that great content. So you're still doing social media when you're doing SEO. It's just don't don't think of it as this hunter mentality where it's eat, shoot, kill, you know, uh, uh, sorry, uh, see, shoot, kill. You yeah. don't get to eat before you kill it. Um, you, you know what I'm saying? So Exactly. There's tremendous reasons for doing. If you're not doing social media, you're almost certainly making a mistake. Yeah. Well, you know, if we 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 bring it back to simplistic terms, what do search engines want to do? They want to place at the top of the results the, you know, the the best quality, most authoritative content. And if you're building your brand and your personal brand elsewhere, that's going to have implications, you know, one way or the other, be it direct or indirect, on your search results. I mean, it's all it's all integrated together, right? Uh, yes, absolutely, and. Uh, you know, it's perfectly safe to eat the ice cream. Uh, you're not going to drown. Uh, <laughs> or in this case, it's uh, it's great to do the social media because um, uh, it, it will inevitably indirectly drive the signals that drive SEO. And, and that's awesome. Awesome. Well, I think we should wrap it up there. You know, in addition to some great insightful uh, commentary on what's happening in inbound marketing and search, we've certainly had a fact-filled episode too. Ice cream and drowning have a very strong correlation. And of course, we'll, we'll, we'll draw back to the, the, uh, the foosball world championship fact we, uh, we entered the show with. So Eric, thank you so much for coming on and sharing what you have today. I'm sure Traffic Jam listeners are eager to connect with you and um, find out more about what you've uh, got going on. Where should they reach out to you? So uh, three places uh, are the easiest. Uh, stonetemple.com is the website. Uh, at Stone Temple is the Twitter handle. And plus Eric Enga is the Google Plus handle. 
those are the, the three best places uh, to try and reach me. Uh, or if they want, they can always email me at uh, eenge at stonetemple.com. That's awesome. So listeners, that was Eric Enger from stonetemple.com. All of Eric's social links and the resources and a full transcript of today's interview will, of course, be found on the center of the web that is devoted to Traffic Jam, and that is trafficjamcast.com. So head on over there for all of the resources. And I'll just close out once more by thanking you, Eric, for coming on the show. It's been uh, it's been a lot of fun, and um, hopefully we can do it all again sometime in the in the future as well. I'd enjoy that, and uh, thanks so much for having me, Jim. This week's news in traffic. Okay, so for the first story this week, I'm going over to TechCrunch.com, who've reported on a story that's been released via Discuss, D-I-S-Q-U-S, which are the commenting system people that actually power the comments over on my Veravo.com website and those that you'll see beneath the Traffic Jam episodes. Well, the story is here that Discuss have announced a new ad unit called Sponsored Comments. The Discuss General Manager David Flex says actually this new ad unit stems from the launch of their featured comments about a month ago. And it really does sound like a sponsored comment is basically a featured comment that advertisers pay for, therefore allowing them to occupy the same spot at the top of a comment thread. Now, of course, I realize that Discuss have got to monetize their platform somehow, but I don't think this will be a feature that I'll be subscribing to either as an advertiser to be featured on someone else's blog or as a content creator having advertisements featured on my own site. I really feel that, you know, the comment section is where all of the open discussion should happen and it shouldn't be disrupted by advertising. It really should be a clean platform, a clean area on your site. So not going to be something I subscribe to. I suggest it's probably something that you don't subscribe to yourself. So to our second story this week, I head on over to marketingland.com, who've reported on a big push by Twitter to introduce a whole new number of ad units to their advertising platform. Now, this is not just a small push, but a massive push of 15 new types of ad product in the next six months. Now, this first ad unit to be released will, of course, be especially popular with game developers such as Candy Crush maker King, who according to some industry experts, believe they account for at least half of Facebook's mobile ad revenue. So that really is the story here. Twitter, I think, have realized that their ad platform kind of does suck a little bit. And if they're to regain some of their market share from Facebook, they're going to need to improve their offering and certainly cater better for app developers that seem to make up such a large proportion of Facebook's advertising revenue. And that really is it for the news this week. Very much a slow week in the world of traffic. Not much else to talk about other than a a slight update to Google Analytics and AdWords account linking. You can now do that in bulk. I'll make sure that that news story is linked to within the show notes. And also a non-news story from TechCrunch that Bing is here to stay, quashing rumors that seem to be circulating about the possibility of Microsoft selling off Bing to Facebook. So that really is it. Remember that you can get the links to these stories in full by going to the show notes page of episode number 34 at trafficjamcast.com A shout out and a thank you to Chal who left a five star Stitcher review and she said highly recommended I love Traffic Jam from the interview to this week's news in traffic and the one minute traffic tip James and his guests bring it every single episode the caliber of guests is second to none and not just the usual old faces either. Keep up the standard, James, and I'll certainly keep on tuning in. So thank you, Chell. I really do appreciate you stopping by and leaving your comments. I appreciate every single comment that I get for the show and certainly welcome receiving yours too. So
So if you've not left a review or comment for Traffic Jam so far, please go and do that. It really is the best possible way that you can not only show your appreciation for the content that my guests share each and every week, but also to help the show up the iTunes and Stitcher rankings and get this content out to more people. Now, there's a few places you can leave your review. iTunes is one, Stitcher is the other, but also you can do it on the site itself, trafficjamcast.com. And if you scroll down to the base of the site in the footer, you'll find a leave a voice message link and that will open up SpeakPipe where you can actually talk your feedback into your microphone on your computer, uh, which I'll probably read out on a future episode if you do that. So if you want to get yourself some airtime, get yourself heard on the Traffic Jam podcast, that's exactly the way to do it. The one minute traffic tip. Okay, so today's tip may be an obvious one if you're doing it, but it's still amazing how often this small tip is overlooked. So what is the tip? Well, it's to install social sharing chiclets or widgets or whatever else you want to call them on the content pages of your website. Now the main share chiclets to install would be the Facebook like and share buttons, Twitter retweet, Pinterest pin, Google plus one, LinkedIn share, or whatever other social media network is relevant to your business. No, I said install on the content pages of your website. That would be your blog. Refrain from installing them on your service or contact us pages because no one wants to share those pages on your site. Now, the point is to make sharing of your hard worked content easy. When you create useful and engaging content, you want your audience to share that content to their own audience, in turn helping you reach new people. Now test the placement of the chiclets in different places on your page. The main objective to have them placed in a prominent place that will prompt people to share your content, of course, assuming that it's deserving of a share. So as I almost wrap on this week's show, I want to thank you for listening in to episode number 34 and to remind you that I will, of course, be back for episode number 35 next week, where I'll be interviewing Martin Shervington all about Google+, and that's a not-to-be-missed episode. Now, remember, you can subscribe via iTunes and Stitcher Radio, and thanks to two very helpful short links, you'll be able to find those places super easily now, and those links are traffic jamcast.com forward slash iTunes and surprisingly enough trafficjamcast.com forward slash Stitcher. So that's where to find the show subscriptions and also to leave your review and feedback for the show. You can also visit trafficjamcast.com to join the discussion on this week's episode and get links to all of the resources mentioned in today's episode, as well as heading over to veravo.com for more traffic tips and training and learn how I can help you get more traffic via the search engines. I close this week's show with Eric Enger's chosen jam, which is called Roll Over Beethoven. Not the original Chuck Berry version, by the way, but the version by Electric Light Orchestra, which are a 1970s Brummy band from Birmingham in England, just down the road from me. And uh, I'm sure you'll recognize the track. Hope you enjoy it. See you back here in about seven days from now.
listening to the Traffic Jam Podcast with James Reynolds. To know more about this program and to subscribe for future episodes, check out the website, trafficjamcast.com.